Ross, that was that was so beautiful, man. Kittens. Yeah. Kittens. Who who would have thunk kittens? You know, they're just they're just so pretty and so cute. You got cats over there, Russ? I, how did you make it look like you were actually crying, man? You that how did it look like I, your eyes were red? Dude, you, you see the tears on this? <laughs> Come on now. I'm a softie at heart. I got oh, a cat wow. at the house. Yeah. You don't have cats over there? No, no. You, who was who it that sang that song, have... you know, in the arms of an angel? And you got the pound <laughs> scene. Isn't that what it reminded you of? Yeah, of course. Look at that. Yeah. <laughs> well, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to C4C Apologetics. I am your host, Danny, with C4C Apologetics. I got, yes, if you've seen him before, this is my brother from another mother, Russell, with one less L in his name than what he really should have. But hey, I didn't name him, but I still love him anyways. And so he's uh, with the Ministry of the Berean Dialogues. Today, we're really going to be talking about why theology even matters about anything. What is this term theology and, and uh, really diving into that. But before we actually do all that, Russ, uh, make the audience familiar with who you are, a little bit about you, a little bit about the ministry, anything you'd like to share before we actually jump in. Well, everybody, I'm a friend of Danny's and uh, we used to go to church together in Prattville, Alabama. Uh, we shared an awesome pastor in Ken Stadola. And uh, we got to know each other then, and since then we both have been led by God into various forms of ministry, obviously. Um, I'm a pastor of a small country church now in Carmel, Louisiana. It's near Shreveport. been there for six years now and uh, have six kids and an awesome and beautiful wife, Rachel. And we just want to serve the Lord with our life and love God and love others. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Six cats. Hats off, hats off to you, man. I'm just, God can only trust me with two. Or I said six cats, didn't I? Did say six, six kids. Cats. Well, that's six, why I, was, I don't have cats. I'm still on the cat trip. Kids. <laughs> Maybe that's because Rob was telling me that, uh, yes, that is my motto, that real men, we have cats. But six kids, <laughs> I'm glad the Lord didn't trust me with uh, more than two kids because I don't know if I could deal with it, man. I don't know if I could handle it. And so I'm thankful that I got the two. I got really one and a half because one's out of the house in Montana and the other's with us and having a great time. So where can they find Brand Dialogues? Uh, you can find it on CastBox. You can find it on Audible. You can find it on Google Podcast, and you can find it on iTunes. Okay. So you get, there you go. Check it out. Uh, did you say YouTube? You can find it on YouTube. I only got two episodes, one with uh, William Bell and one with you. And it's just audio, right? Yeah, it's audio, and I have your picture in a thumbnail. And you didn't like it, the picture. I hey, still so got yeah, Everybody should go check it out and let <laughs> Danny know what you think about his photo. It's a Ladies photo. and gentlemen, that was our episode. We will see you next week. I'm <laughs> oh, just kidding. <laughs> well, like I was saying earlier, we want to really look at this this I this topic, this question, what is theology? What is theology and does it even really matter what people think about? Now, we have some bullet points and things like that that we want to step through this process to look at this. Yes, if you know me, look at it logically, look at it scripturally, and just have a sort of organization with this discussion. Uh, if you guys have any comments while we're going through this, go ahead and uh, tag me in it at C4C Apologetics. 
and then type your question. And then we'll try our best to go ahead and answer those questions as we get to them as well. We don't want to wait, wait till the very end with the debates and stuff like that. Normally it's at the very end segment. And so we'll do our best. But first, right off the bat, uh, theology, what is theology? And really just, Russ, I just want to take really the basic premise of this right, right now real quick before I let you jump in. Uh, theology with the bare words. Theos, theos is God, and ology is a study of. And so basically, theology is really the study of God. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to look at, okay, which God? Because when you read in uh, Mars Hill, when Paul's up there in Mars Hill or Aragopagus, uh, there was a tomb to the unknown God, and there were pagans worshiping all sorts of gods. There were Stoic and Epicurean philosophers, and so there is this variance idea of different deities. And so we really want to look at what is the one true and living God. Uh, but before we do that, Russ, how would you define theology? What is theology to you? Well, uh, theology, um, just want to add to what you said, the ology, the word that it comes from is logos. Logos, yep. So it it's really, to me, um, and I share this opinion with others as well, but it's the study of the words of God and the words about God um, in, in, in the strictest sense. That's yeah. just bare bones. Theology is more than that. I think we're going to draw that out here today, but um, at the most, in the most basic sense, that's what it is. So when we're looking at the actual definition of theology, really the, just the rudimentary definition, like it said, logos is the word, theos is God. And so really it's the study of the word of God, like you were saying. Uh, what do you see the purpose of theology? What is theology's purpose? To know the one true and living God, the, the true creator of the cosmos. So if, theology and the whole purpose behind theology is to know the one true living God. How do we know which God there is amongst, I mean, you, you got Mormons, you got Muslims, you got Hindus with millions of gods. I mean, what's one of the things that makes you realize, okay, which is the true God? What are your thoughts? Well, um, you know, I think it's going to kind of go full circle. There's different ways people come about this. Um, you can start with a presupposition, uh, which is, you know, I believe the word of God. I believe the Bible to be the word of God. And so when I'm studying theology or the mm -hmm. words of God and the words about God, mm -hmm. I go to the source that I believe to be God's word. So I'm, okay. yeah, to me, theology is studying the one true God of the Bible because the the God of the Bible is the one true God. Now, if we want to get into evidences, which I'm sure you'll bring up here in a little bit, um, I have some scriptures I want to bounce off off of that and kind Definitely. of back on you. Bounce off of it, man. Let's hear what what are some of your scriptures because you were talking about. And I like how you pulled out. A lot of it has to do with the presuppositions. And so if I was a Muslim, then my presupposition would be Allah in the Quran and the Hadith and, and all these other writings. Uh, but how do we know that, say, the Book of Mormon, the Quran and all these other writings are fallible compared to the Bible? Um, well, we we believe that God preserved his word. We believe that he kept his word intact. And we believe that just like it says in the book of Hebrews, that God has spoken and 
various times and in various ways through the through the prophets and the apostles. But in the end, mm-hmm. at the very end, in the last, he spoke to us through his son, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and so it's about Jesus Christ is why we believe the Bible is true. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and stop there and let you bring in your, your bullet point there. Oh, no. <clears throat> so one thing when you were pointing out the aspect of looking at scripture and the infallibility and the preservation of the word, and even, even before we get to Jesus, because I know in the Old Testament there was prophecies of the Messiah, there was prophecies of Jesus, but in the Old Testament they had uh, scripture, they had the writings, they had the Tanakh, which was made up of the Torah and the prophets and the writings. And people always say, okay, if, if you had a skeptic, what book of the Bible would you lead them to? What book of the Bible would you give them to read to find about who is God? And most people will turn to the Gospel of John because it's the by far the most evangelistic book in the Bible. I, on the other hand, am a little different because if I'm looking at a skeptic, I'm looking at somebody that doesn't really trust the word of God anyways. And when I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking of Daniel chapter 11. So if anybody out there has never read Daniel chapter 11, I would highly encourage you to take some time to look at it and study it and look at the history behind it as well. Not the history of Daniel per se, but the history of the Greek kingdom, because in Daniel chapter 11, It talks about this mighty king in verse 3 that's going to stand up and will rule with great dominion. Then in verse 4, Daniel chapter 6, or Daniel 11 says, And when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven, and not to his posterity. And so what this is talking about, this is actually talking about Alexander the Great. This is talking about Alexander the Great hundreds of years before he was even born. And in Daniel chapter 11, It reveals the fact not only would this king rise and rule Greece, but also that he would die and his kingdom would be split to four parts. You have Lysimachus, you have Cassander, you have Ptolemy, and you have Seleucid. And those are the four kingdoms that made up the Greek empire at that time. And so you get this prophecy hundreds of years before it even happened of Alexander the Great in this aspect. But not only that, you get later in those verses as well, you get insight into the Ptolemaic and the Seleucid empires in different aspects that are happening, such as the marriage union between Bernice of, of Ptolemy's kingdom and Antiochus, I believe it's the second of the Seleucid kingdom, showing that there was this marriage union between the north and the south, king of the north and the south in Daniel 11 for this pact of unity. And things like that can't be made up. This is prophesied And then this has been fulfilled hundreds of years after the fact. And so Daniel, specifically even Daniel chapter 11, let alone all the other visions in the book of Daniel, are so important to go ahead and see prophecy fulfilled, which no other religious book Mm -hmm. has prophecies fulfilled like Scripture does. And so for me, that's fascinating. But then you brought up the aspect of Jesus as well. And so if I were to ask you, who is Jesus, Russ, how would you answer that? Because that's an important question. Uh, well, Jesus is is the second member of the Trinity. He's God the Son. He's the Creator. Um, he's God made flesh, as it it's revealed in John chapter one, one and one fourteen, and he's the one who came um, to die on the cross for our sins, and he resurrected from the dead, which mm. is a big deal. Amen. 
reason why I asked that question is because I remember years ago we were, I think you were still living out here as well. We were living over on uh, McQueen's Smith over on Heather drive and I'm out there and I'm edging my yard and I, there's this white van. It's like a creep van it just pulls up right next to me. I'm outside and it's one of those old, my, my daughter calls them kidnapper vans. Right. And then out pops two people, two grown adults. And so I'm like, okay, I'm already on, on back my, my heels. And they're like, I want to talk to you about Jesus. I was like, okay, bet. I was like, what Jesus do you want to talk about? I mean, <laughs> you want to talk about the Mormon Jesus, Jehovah Witness Jesus? You want to talk about the biblical Jesus? Tell me who Jesus is to you. And uh, they they had a completely skewed version of the biblical Jesus. And that Jesus does not save. You know, with the Mormon Jesus teaching that he's the spirit brother of Lucifer, with the Jehovah's Witness teaching of Jesus being Michael the Archangel, with Islam teaching that Jesus is just a prophet, a man prophet, if you will, and all the other religions out there. It's fascinating because Jesus is an individual in religion, no matter what religion you go to, that is uh, highly influential. Whether you look at Eastern religions or whether you look at uh, Middle Eastern, Far East, whatever the case is, he is somebody that they highly regard. They don't consider him deity, but they do regard him. And that's got to say something very powerful. But like you said, uh, one of the questions as far as apologetics are concerned is a question about doubt. You know, people, sometimes they have doubts in their in their faith and their salvation and, and God, if you will. And I always find encouragement with John the Baptist, because when John the Baptist, he was the forerunner of Messiah. His main purpose was to baptize people for one main purpose of identifying who the Messiah was. And that's what God told him in John chapter one. But after that, when John the Baptist was arrested, he was put in prison. He said to the people that came up to him, he was like, is he the Messiah or should we look for another one? So John the Baptist had a doubt at least one moment in his time. And for me, that's encouraging because when a doubt does creep into my mind, I can take solace in the fact that John the Baptist, who Jesus says there is none greater born among women than John the Baptist. If he had a question, then... It's not necessarily wrong. I just want to make sure these questions uh, don't continue and they don't progress. But when that doubt and that question comes in, you, you hit the nail on the head when you said he resurrected. I always go back to the empty tomb. People can try to question God's existence or question the rationality of Christianity or whatever the case is. But when I look back on the empty tomb and I look at back at the five quote-unquote theories, they're not theories, they're hypothesis, but when I look back on the five theories of what happened to the empty tomb, they all they all fall miserably short and fall face on, flat on their face. And so the only rational explanation is a supernatural explanation as to why that tomb was empty. And when I remember that, it gives me so much assurance as far as you know, just who God is and the doubts that I'm struggling with. Because Satan, he loves trying to throw those seeds of doubts in there. But I want to ask mm -hmm. a question as far as theology is concerned. In your experience, do you believe that theology is developed or is it discovered? Or is it both? What are your thoughts? <laughs> I think uh, I was going to ask you a question. Is it safe to say that What's we that? develop our theology as we discover it? You know, that's definitely a plausibility right there. You know, I don't want to use the whole false dilemma fallacy and say it's either or, but, you yeah. know, I didn't think about that either. So could you elaborate on that? Um, so 
basically as we as we study God's word and I want to kind of bring this back just a little bit mm-hmm. when you were talking about the resurrection mm-hmm. and how that is like the ultimate proof right there's some scriptures that I that I have pulled up that I mm-hmm. want to share and tie it in to what I'm about to say it says Definitely. Romans 1 4 it says speaking of Jesus and and declared to be the son of God with power <laughs> according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Second Peter one sixteen, speaking of his transfiguration, but still mm-hmm. he was an eyewitness. It says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, it says, To whom, speaking... Um, it says, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, mm. being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now, me and you aren't eyewitnesses. No. We weren't there. Um, so we, what we are doing is we're taking the New Testament and the yeah. writings of the apostles, and we, we, are, we are making... Um, <clears throat> We are putting uh, the cho- uh, making a choice to believe that it is accurate and that it is scripture and that it is the word of God because they were eyewitnesses of these things. Right. And so again, it brings it back full circle to the 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 whole entire foundation of our theology has to be the Bible. It has to be <laughs> God's preserved word because you have to start from there and and work work up from that. It mm. does, even with the resurrection, it goes back. Well, why do we believe in the resurrection? Because we have scriptures that <laughs> declare the resurrection happened. So it always yeah. it always traces back to the roots, which is the word of God, the scripture. Um, with that being said, how how is biblical theology developed or discovered? I believe that as we read things about God's word with our human eyes and with our human intellect, um, as as people that are born again have the spirit of God, we need to lean heavily upon his guidance and Mm -hmm. him opening our eyes because it's a spiritual book and it's spiritually discerned. Mm -hmm. And we, you're not going to be able to get a true understanding going into it with just your own intellect. It has, it has to be led by the Holy spirit as well. So what you have here now is you have things that are written that are, that are what we call the special revelation of God or specific revelation of God through his word and, it, and so you have words on paper, right, that you observe with your human eyes, but at the same time you have this uh, this relationship because the Word of God is living, it's alive. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and so it, it is God's Word, and it's also infused with His Spirit and all kinds of things because Jesus Christ said, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. So there's something about the Word of God that's different from <laughs> just... Um, a, a history book or a math book or the phone book for that matter right <laughs> so like when yeah. you're studying this you're actually it's a personal relationship going on at the same time and so yeah you you're developing things as you're discovering new things about mm-hmm. this this creator that you have this intimate relationship with through yeah. Jesus Christ and it's so it it as you discover new things about God through his word and through the um, through the revealing of the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit revealing things to you, um, it, it's developed in that way. If 
that makes any sense. No, that definitely does, because it's not like whenever somebody gets saved and, and they read scripture that they automatically have theology or they automatically have a framework of theology, if you will. Uh, and so, no, I definitely agree with that. And especially I, I've heard this said before and I like it that these are 66 love letters, you know, and like when we talked about earlier, OK, we can understand what is theology, but really we have to figure out like. Pastor Ken here says all the time, you, you got to try to realize why do people even care, you know? And so if, okay, theology is the study of God, what's the purpose? Why should I even care about it? Well, these 66 books are 66 love letters of a personal infinite God that's reaching down to man, reaching down to mankind in love to say, hey, you have a sin problem, but I have a redeemer. You know, and it's all about pointing out who Jesus is. And that's why it's so pivotal when people want to talk about Jesus. I'm the first one that wants to talk about Jesus. But just like in any debate or any apologetics, you got to define your terms. Mm -hmm. And so which Jesus do you want to talk about? Because there's only one Jesus out there that's the real Redeemer. And that's right. what these 66 letters are about. So the whole purpose of theology is to go ahead and know about this God that loves us and that cares for us and to send Jesus to die for us so that we could live. Mm -hmm. And so after that, we, we come to that. Then we start, like you said, developing this theology, if you will. But it's sad because I, I think I was telling whether I think I was telling you this and I was talking to somebody else earlier that take, for instance, uh, when the Pharisees went down to John the Baptist uh, when he was baptized in the Jordan River. And uh, and they were really trying to figure out, okay, who is this guy doing these baptisms? And uh, we want to investigate this guy. And this individual that was speaking on that passage was saying that the Pharisees and the Sadducees came down because they wanted to be baptized by, Jesus, uh, by John the Baptist. And there's so much reading into the text, and that's that he, they say that's why J, uh, John the Baptist said, "Bring fruits worthy of repentance, works worthy of repentance," and that's completely divorced from the context of understanding. Okay, why did they go there? And understanding with the Sanhedrin and what the religious leaders had to do in the day, whenever there was a someone who claimed to be a Messiah, there was an investigation that went on through the religious leaders of the Sanhedrin to go ahead and see if the claims were accurate and to see if there was any truth to this, to see if he was actually the Messiah. And so when they first went there, they went there to investigate to see, is this John the Baptist the Messiah? And that's why they asked the question. And that's why John Baptist says, there's another one coming after me whose shoes, sandals, I'm not even, un I'm not even worthy to unloose. And so John the Baptist understands what's going on. but And then you get to Matthew chapter 7, and I've heard some other people talk about, you know, uh, by, by your the fruit, you will know who's a Christian. But the problem with that is Jesus is clearly talking about false prophets. And so when you look at what is a false prophet in the day of Jesus, it's somebody that says, thus saith the Lord. It's a different dispensation, different time frame. And then when you even stay within the same passage, I'm sorry, I'm going on a rant, but <laughs> when you ahead. stay within the same passage in Matthew chapter seven, that it says, Jesus says, a good tree cannot bear evil fruit. And so the nat natural question is, okay, so if fruit determines if someone's a Christian and the Christian is the good tree bearing good fruit, have you ever produced evil fruit or an evil work? 
and no one would dare say, no, I've always lived perfectly. And so if Jesus is saying a good tree cannot bear forth evil fruit, then that has to go ahead and suppose that that good tree is not analogous to a Christian being genuine, but mm -hmm. it's actually analogous to a false prophet in yeah. their message about who Jesus is. Which brings and it so, back full circle to the word of God. To the word of God. <laughs> and so, I mean, really, that's that begs the question as far as how do these ideas and interpretations come? Where do they come from? What are your thoughts? You're talking about like as far as people misconstruing the word or adding things to it, man. I, to me, it's a it's a age age old. It's it's a deception almost as old as dirt, literally, mm -hmm. because the devil has always questioned God's word from the very beginning, um, and he's going to continue to try to either question it or twist it or add things to it. Mm -hmm. um, that that's his mo. You know, it's just what he does. And so we have to make make sure that our, the Bible itself, um, let it speak for itself and not add to it. And it's important. That's why uh, hermeneutics and things like that are important as well. But to properly divide, rightly divide the word of truth is essential mm -hmm. to make sure that we can recognize a false prophet or a false teacher or right. even somebody who's led astray by a false teacher. Mm -hmm. Um for instance, false teachers use the passage about false teachers. To <laughs> yes, they do <laughs> to teach. It's about salvation. Come on, the the that that what the irony in that, right? And, and so, you you brought up a very interesting word, one that a lot of people don't un fully understand, or some people don't fully understand, is hermeneutics. And again, this whole thing is why does theology even matter? If theology is the study of God and the purpose of theology is to know the one true living God who sent his son to die for us, then we would do well to figure out how do we understand this book. And with that, it's something called hermeneutics or interpretation, if you will. And so what I want to look at real quick is dispensational hermeneutics. And so within dispensationalism, there's the main, I guess, really the main well-known view as far as dispensationalism is concerned, is that there's different dispensations as far as how God has managed the affairs of mankind, whether it's in the Garden of Eden or after the flood of Noah, uh, during the period of the law, uh, during the church age, now under grace, that the way of salvation has not changed. It has always been faith. It's always been faith. But the, and the object has always been the same. The object has always been Messiah. But way I look at it is, is faith in either looking to or looking back at the cross, if you will. And so when we're considering those things, uh, that's the main overarching aspect of dispensationalism that people understand when they hear this, this term, is how does God steward mankind over different ages, if you will. But unknown to a lot of people within dispensationalism is an interpretive framework, a hermeneutic framework. Uh, something that uh, has been coined as literal, grammatical, and historical. That, okay, so if this Bible is written to a specific audience, going through a specific situation at a specific time, then historically, literal, grammatical, historical, we have to figure out what's going on with them then so that we can apply to us the similar situations we're in. And then we got the aspect of grammatical. Grammatical is the fact that there's words surprisingly in the Bible, there's words written. 
Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, and then translate it in English. And these words have meaning. And so we got to understand what is the meaning of the words. And then we also have to figure out, okay, the nuances of the verbs. Is it present tense? Is it aorist tense? Whatever the case is. And then we got to look at uh, just how they're used, the context. And then that takes me to the literal aspect, literal, grammatical, historical, literal in the fact that, again, the audience, the author plays a huge role. We have to understand the words literally unless the context dictates otherwise. For instance, if I'm reading in the in the book of Acts, it's a historical narrative. I'm going to take it like history. But if I'm reading in the book of Psalms or if I'm reading the Song of Solomon, I'm going to see that there's a lot of poetry within there. And so I'm not going to take that literal because then, I mean, I've gotten into this discussion with some people before. If we want to take the book of Psalms and put a literal understanding on it, then we have to assume that God is a, a rock golem with feathery wings because there's anthropomorphisms that are used to describe God. There's different terminology that's used, that it's a symbolic way of representing his characteristics, if you will. But then we get to Acts, we get to Gospels, New Testament, Old Testament. We got to understand the genre of which they're written in. And if we don't understand the genre, we're going to come away with really bad theology and understanding. And so within dispensationalism, it provides a very neat hermeneutical framework from a literal, grammatical, historical context. And what, what baffles me is understand some people, they will go to Scripture and they will understand that this is special revelation of God. This is the divinely inspired word of God. But they'll go and they'll believe that we cannot understand this like we can any other body of literature. So we have to have like this sort of Gnostic, supernatural, uh, interpretive method to fully draw out what God is saying, not realizing that, no, these were letters and accounts from specific people to specific people through a specific situation. The literary devices are the same we use today in the literary frameworks, the same we have today as well. And so we just need to take what we already know as far as interpreting documents and apply it to scripture within its context and within its dispensation. And so... Uh, I'd like to say a little more, but I'll, I want to pause there for a minute and see if you have anything you want to add to that also. Just, it, yeah, I don't want to go off on a on a tangent, um, but I did want to add that you can take any one of these, uh, the, the literal, the grammatical, or the historical, and um, take it too far in certain cases. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like, you can you can pay so much attention to the grammar, you know what I'm saying? In the Greek and going into the, well, what it meant back then was this. And then now, now, you know, could you elaborate the, on at, that? <laughs> yeah. Basically at the, uh, at the cost of understanding context, context and what, yeah, at the yeah. whole biblical context is important too. Yep. You know what I mean? You have to know from the beginning to end, as far as historical, um, basically the, you know, the principalizing bridge, right. You know, you want to, yep you know, what they teach us in seminary. But even with that, you can end up, if you take it too far, you can end up uh, like Michael Heiser, who doesn't take Genesis literally. Right. And you you get where I'm coming from, where, mm -hmm. where now you're going back and looking at Sumerian culture and studying Sumerian culture and say, well, this is the culture that the, the, Isra the Israelis came from, and this is how they would have understood it. Right. And, 
and then you get all this crazy stuff that they kind of teach us or they teach me at, <laughs> you know in old testament survey some weird stuff that yeah. and they're and they're appealing to like sumerian cultural context and it's right. it sounds a lot like what michael heiser teaches too so i'm pretty sure he got it from seminary as well um but you can take when i'm my whole point is you can take it too, too far. far so you ha yeah you have to have a little bit of discernment and wisdom and right no know. definitely i i agree because it's not like anybody needs to I, i'm not a greek expert i mean there's millions of people that know a lot more greek than i do obviously i sure don't know hebrew sound like a fool trying to pronounce hebrew and then aramaic i don't even know how to spell aramaic you know so you don't have to be a language expert to understand what god's word is saying you know you just got to apply normal principles like you're saying as far as interpreting any body of literature and really like they say context is key context is key and the other big thing about dispensationalism is the fact of understanding that there is a big distinction between israel and the church israel and the church are not the same because we have to realize that God has made unconditional covenants with Israel and he has promised to fulfill them uh, in the future as well. And there are certain covenants like the land covenant uh, that's going to be fulfilled in this entirety. The new covenant where the Jewish people are going to receive a new heart. One of the questions I've heard on a debate was the fact on uh, when the passage in Ezekiel, I forget where, 34 or something like that, says, I will give you a, a new heart and uh, uh, you will... It, I forget what the passage was, but it was clearly explaining that there would be no sin nature anymore. And they're trying to use that as saying that a Christian, when they become a new creation, all things are passed away and all become all things become new. And they're saying, see, there's this stone of heart that was removed or a stone of flesh. Uh, heart, of, heart of stone was removed, put in a heart of flesh, and now they will obey God. But understanding that Ezekiel passage is looking forward to the new covenant during the Messianic kingdom coupled with Jeremiah 31, I think verses 31 through 33, it clearly reveals this aspect of the new covenant as well with the Jewish people whom they will no longer have any need for anybody to teach them their neighbor who Messiah is because they will all know him and they will keep his word and his commandment. And so we see that Israel still has covenants of God that God will fulfill in the future. And that's the whole purpose on, I got a video out there talking about when is Jesus Christ going to return? Jesus Christ is going to return when the Jewish leadership acknowledge him as the Messiah and calls for him back. And unfortunately, when we read Zechariah 13, Zechariah 14, we read in the book of Revelation and other passages, that's not going to happen until at the end of the great tribulation period where two thirds of the Jews will uh, end up dying, but the one third remnant will be divinely protected and they will call upon Jesus as Messiah to deliver them. And that's really what I think Romans 10, 9 and 10 is about. But I got a video on that as well, if anybody wants to check that out also. But as far as these dispensational principles, it's very important to realize the distinction between Israel and the church, uh, the period of law, which we're no longer under law, that we're under grace and things like that. Uh, moving on from dispensationalism and why does all this matter, I want to really look at what are some tenets of free grace theology. And so if I were to ask you, Russ, as far as free grace theology is concerned, what would be like number one or number two top teachings within free grace theology you think are most important? Well, I think the reason, I guess the most important thing is why, why we call it free grace theology, right? Um, 
first of all, is that we believe that salvation, eternal life, the forgiveness of sin, all of that is the free grace belief is that as long as you believe the gospel, you're saved. Mm -hmm. That's it. You believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, rose again from the dead, you're saved. Amen. And beyond that, anything else, (laughs) we, we just, we, we, we make sure that that right there, the gospel and salvation, we bring it way over here. That way nobody mixes it up with discipleship or, um, sanctification or anything right. else, and we keep them on completely opposite ends of the room because it's important. Right. Um, the, I guess the main thing about free grace is it's it's about grace. Grace is free by definition; it's unmerited. That means you know what I mean. Go ahead. It it, it baffles me why so many people overlook that aspect. That if if we rightfully divine grace is unmerited favor and even those of the calvinist and lordship persuasion they'll 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 argue that yes grace is unmerited favor and it's only by grace are we saved through faith how do they still develop how is there still this idea that works play a role to have maintain or uh, prove salvation How, how does that happen what are your thoughts um, can you say that one more time? So, like the Calvinist, the Lordship crowd, mm-hmm. they'll articulate the fact that yes, grace is unmerited favor. Okay, and it's only by grace we're saved through faith. And they'll articulate okay. faith alone as well. Yeah. But yet they still have this idea <laughs> that you have to have works to have, maintain, or prove salvation. Where is this idea coming from? Um, well, because it's coming from their faulty foundation. <laughs> Um, they they ha- they they have a backloaded gospel that, for some reason, when like uh, James chapter two is a big one, they they love to go to James two. They mm. like again like the false prophets. They like to point out the fruit type of things. And um, see that uh, that's interesting. I'm sorry, I want to cut you off ahead. real quick. So when, when we're getting to like James two and these other aspects, and I'm actually going to draw this out you know, more clearly here in a minute, but there's so many times we try to bring our Western eyes to scripture, ignoring the historical context, ignoring the Jewish context. And one clear example, now I don't, let me ask you this real quick, Russ, what day of the week, what day of the week do you think Jesus Christ was crucified? I'm just curious. Friday. Okay. Why is that? Um, (laughs) (laughs) yeah so and and i bring this up because we use our western mindset of thinking most people that hold to a wednesday or thursday view of crucifixion is only because jesus says three days and three nights i'll be in the heart of the earth that's the only reason why but what's fascinating is the only gospel that records jesus says three days and three nights the only gospel is the gospel of matthew Mm-hmm. And the gospel of Matthew was written to a Jewish audience. Every other gospel that references when Jesus is going to rise, they say the third day. Mm-hmm. They don't say three days and three nights. They say the third day. And so if you have a Wednesday or a Thursday crucifixion, you really, when you map it out, you don't get a third day resurrection. 
the fact that Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience, he's using an idiom or a figure of speech where part of a part of a day is considered equal to the whole. And so to the Jewish mindset, three days and three nights is the same thing as saying rising on the third day for the Gentile audience. And so a lot of times we're bringing our Western mindset into scripture. And so if you were to ask me, why do I believe in a Friday resurrection or crucifixion? It's because Jesus promised he was going to rise on the third day. If he crucified on Friday before sundown, that's day one. Then you get Friday sundown to Sunday, Saturday sundown, that's day two. Then you get Sunday morning, that's the third day. And that's the only way you get the third day resurrection. But that's having a Jewish understanding to this aspect. And so, I'm sorry, I just wanted to stop right there real quick and, and cut you off. But No, that's fine. No. What that's are your good. thoughts as far as uh, going back to what you were saying as far as putting in theology or philosophy? Um, well, what I was saying is that they, they, um, they have this idea that because they're saved that they're automatically going to produce fruit and produce works and then they look at that as proof that they're saved um but that can never really assure you of your salvation because like, like we talked about earlier you're going to have two baskets you're going to have a basket of well hopefully two baskets you're definitely going to have one basket and it's going to be <laughs> bad fruit you're definitely going to have that one yeah okay. that rotten fruit yeah, yeah. <laughs> you may only have one little fruit in the other basket but you know yeah. we, we ha we're going to have both and uh so that falls apart just on just basic common sense to me that it falls apart you know because yeah. it's not the real experience because no calvinist is walking around here like they're saved you know what right. i mean like or you know like uh john MacArthur. you know what i'm saying he uh i think charlie Bing had heard him say one time that yeah uh that he was only like 99 point he was like 99.9 nine nine percent oh, about sure macarthur saved. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Like that that's what that's what you end up with um but i will yeah. say this like god has used guys like zane hodges and like you brother danny mm -hmm. to really help me personally understand james too because i i want to say this me and you were in a hebrew israelite <laughs> um, Facebook page, and we're arguing with Black Hebrew Israelites. Oh, Remember that was that? fun! I am never doing that again, dude. It was crazy. So <laughs> me and you were in there, and we're we're telling these guys the truth, and we're bringing them the gospel. And yeah. James too came up in a conversation, and I brought up it what you know what I've been reading in commentaries, and what a lot of people they misapply or misunderstand. James too, and I had that same misunderstanding. And I grew up in church. I grew up in yeah. independent, fundamental Baptist preaching churches. And so, right. you know, and then you had hit me up in the back chat, you know, and you were uh, messaging me back and forth, and you were talking to me about James too. And then you had sent me some material that you had uh, had put together for I think maybe your Sunday school class or uh -huh. something. And you had sent it to me, and I started looking at it, and that God really used you in a, in that way to to help me understand what James two is actually teaching. <laughs> and Zane Hodges, you know, on my quest for understanding James two mm -hmm. the the to the best of my ability, um, I you know found Zane Hodges, and he has a, a series on YouTube that's super old. It looks like it was. 
I, I don't know. It, it, it was like faded out. Everything was in black and white. I don't know. But, <laughs> yeah, but he was talking about, <laughs> Yeah, he was talking about his final thoughts on James too, and he he opened it up by saying that you know he said pretty much everything there is that he could possibly think to say on mm -hmm. James too. But he had like a few final thoughts before he pretty much yeah. closed the chapter and quit right. dealing with it. And those final thoughts are really cool and uh, really to me they were profound and. Uh, and so when I look at James 2, and I, I can really now, because God used men like you and Zane Hodges and others, um, God used you guys to help me understand. Now I, I, I'm confident when I'm talking to somebody in my church or congregation yeah. or even a friend that may be a Calvinist or something, I, I, I'm very confident in my, in my interpretation of James 2 because yeah. I believe it's biblically sound. Yeah. You know, but I appreciate that from you, by the way. Uh, those kind of words, Russ. I. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I remember arguing with, seems like everybody in the black Hebrew Israelites first name is Moses, but, <laughs> but I appreciate that. We were talking about this in one of our growth groups this past Sunday night, as far as, cause we're studying through the book of James and we looked at the aspect of uh, uh, Abraham, you know, when he sacrificed Isaac on Mount Moriah and that his faith, you know, uh, justified him according, according to scripture and it says and he was called the friend of god and a lot of these lordship guys they'll, they'll cling on that phrase that he was called the friend of god right and they'll say see he was a christian because it says he was the friend of god but you know what's interesting with that phrase in the same letter in the fourth chapter and i think pastor ken drew this out i want to say this past sunday and in James chapter 4, verse number 4, I believe it is, James calls those same people, ye adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is an enmity with God? And so there is an aspect that a Christian can not be a friend of God. You know, that we can be living our own way, going prodigal, you know, trying to please ourselves and gratify our flesh. And we're not being a friend of God, because like you said a moment ago, and like other comments on here have already said, that there's a big difference between uh, forensic justification and practical. There's a difference between positional sanctification and practical sanctification. And so when we understand that, we understand, yes, a Christian can be an enemy of God because we're not living with God's desire to please to please God with you know our desire to please him and to obey his commandments. And so too many times the lordship they'll cling on little phrases like that. He was called the friend of God or his works justified him and they want to prove their theology. I call it philosophical theology where they're inserting their thoughts, their man philosophy into scripture similar to eisegesis. But when we're looking at what are the basic tenets of free grace theology, uh, you mentioned grace, you know, and it's got to be free. And you talked about faith alone. I also I want to stick on this aspect of positional and practical sanctification. This was completely eye opening to me. I've always thought and, and heard of sanctification just being sanctification is our progress of getting more like Christ, you know, and we get over one hill then, okay, we have another hill to get over and we're get more like Christ. But there's always been a couple passages that really baffled me where uh, the author writes to the audience that you are sanctified, you are sanctified, you are saints. And it always baffled me is like, if sanctification is a progress, 
then why is he saying you are already sanctified? Because I know I'm not perfect. And so when I think it was Dr. Charlie Bing, he had pointed out the fact that there's a positional sanctification and a practical sanctification. And understanding the difference between the two and one that we are positionally secure and set apart with God and his family, and the other we are practically set apart uh, by God for works to serve him and things like that. So there's a practical aspect of living a Christian life to look more like Christ, and there's a positional one that we are in Christ. And that helped allow me to understand the difference as far as why does this say you are sanctified as opposed to your being. And so that really was eye-opening for me. Uh, so free grace theology, one of the big things is there's a big distinction between uh, discipleship and discipline. You know, a lot of times there's an aspect of discipleship within free grace theology, rightfully say, because, hey, we can go go prodigal and, and we need somebody to come alongside and disciple people. But then we also teach that God will bring discipline to the wayward Christian. It's part of rehabilitation. It's part of his ministry of reconciliation to us to bring us back into a right fellowship with him. It's not because we're not saved. It's because just like a good father, I would discipline my kids to get them to do corrective behavior, correct their action. And it's the same thing. And so within free grace theology, it allows for us to have not only discipleship, but also discipline. And so when we're being charged with being antinomian and saying, hey, we teach a licentiousness and, and you could just have a license to sin. Well, in essence, yes, because our eternal life is not predicated on the sin that I do because Jesus paid it all on that cross 2000 years ago. When I accepted the free gift of eternal life, he paid all those sins past, present and future. But free grace theology does not condone license to sin. We do teach that you have got to uh, get, you know, in, in right fellowship with God. You want to serve God because Jesus says, by all this, well, all men know you're my disciples. If you have love for one another, so we got to love each other. Jesus says in the Beatitudes that uh, we need to let our light shine so that people can see our good works and glorify the Father in heaven. And Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. So the big difference is we don't do works for salvation, but we do works because of salvation. It's a totally different motive. Yeah. And that really is going to bring me into my next thought. And I just want to take this one real quick, Ross, while you, you take some time, if you want to think about this yourself. What are my hangups with Calvinism and Lordship Salvation? I'm not even going to talk about Arminianism, but I want to talk about these two branches of theology. I have a, this stems why theology matters. The whole purpose why we're doing this right now, Russ, is because I had a burden to get people to realize theology matters a great deal. If God wrote 66 love letters to us to reveal himself to us, it is very important to rightly divide the word of truth to know what is he saying. And so why do I have issues with Calvinism and Lordship? Well, I've already talked about the fact that there's a lot of times they're reading into the text on Matthew 7 and James 2 and other passages, 1 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. There's a difference between being in the faith and being Christ. Paul doesn't say, examine yourself to see if you're in Christ. No, 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 no. And so, and if you study the phrase in the faith, you'll find other aspects of different ways you can be in the faith. So it has nothing to do with soteriology in that regard. But when we really look at Calvinism and lordship and their view on works and what role works play, number one, it's always subjective. 
How many good works do I have to do? How good of a work does it have to be done? How frequent do I have to do these works? Then not only that, we have to look at what does this do to evangelism? When I first really got involved in trying to study Calvinism really hard, I had a really good close friend of mine. And he was a hardcore Calvinist. He was a big Johnny Mac fan. And we I loved the guy. He was a Christian. He was very outspoken about his faith. I loved him. He was a great apologist and stuff like that. But we got to talking about Calvinism, sovereignty of God. And the first thing I found out was he believed that people were predestined to salvation, elected to salvation, this and that. And I asked him, I was like, why do you evangelize? If if you're saying God has already chosen before the foundation of the earth, who's going to choose him and that they're going to be irresistibly drawn to him, then why do you evangelize? To me, I told him, I was like, that to me is telling me that you're saying God cannot save them unless you go get them. Because if God knows them and God chose them and God is irresistibly drawing them, why does he need you? He created everything out of nothing. That didn't make sense to me. But the other biggest issue that I had really was it was a complete knock on the character of God. For instance, he made a mention that, okay, being a Calvinist, he really believed he was one of the elect. How he knows, I have no idea because you don't have security. You have probation uh, by continually looking at yourself. But he made a comment that his, I think it was his mother wasn't saved. And so I'd asked him a very pointed question. We were really good friends at the time. I was like, Shane, how does that make you feel? If you really believe God chose you for salvation, but God willingly didn't choose your mother and willingly chose to create her and send her to hell with her not having a chance at all, how could you serve a God like that? To me, it teaches a malevolent, a tyrannical, a dictator, unjust God who created people who has no ability to choose the gift of salvation. And that's one of my biggest hangups. So when I asked him the question, how can you serve the God like that? He chalks it up to, oh, I'm the, I'm the clay. He's the potter. What, what's the clay going to say to the potter? I am what he does and the sovereignty of God and this and that. And my biggest hangup is how they make God's character to be so evil and unjust. Now, I don't, I don't believe every Calvinist will, will hold to this view or lordship, but that when I'm dealing with Calvinists, those are mainly who I'm dealing with. And so those are my big hangups. And then the last thing is really when you're getting into the lordship, their assurance of salvation has to be predicated on their ability to do works. You know, I, I trust John 3.16. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him and does works has everlasting life. See, my translation doesn't have and have works. My translation says, look and live. You have eternal life. First John chapter 5, verse number 13. These things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. And so I have assurance of my salvation because not of what I could do because I'll fail every single week. But I have assurance of my salvation because of what Jesus has done and what Jesus promised mm -hmm. in the word of God. Those are my big hangups. It, 
it takes away the assurance. There is no assurance. There's always legalism, bondage, insecurity on am I doing enough? Am I going to be kicked out of God's family? Am I going to have final salvation and things like that? And then it makes God's character to be out this malevolent, unjust being, which scripture does not detail. And so, I don't know. I'm sorry. I just, I had to go on a little tangent real quick, but what are your thoughts? It it is. It's a big burden for me. And like I said, it's the whole basis on why we're doing this video. I'm trying to get people to understand why theology matters, why we have got to know what God's word rightly says, because it plays a huge role in evangelism, outreach, discipleship, and everything else. Everything Everything in your life. Everything. (laughs) Every single thing. Yes. Um, yeah, that's why it's important because it's, you know, he's the creator and he has a will for our life and how we should live. And we need to get to know him and get to know his will. That's, I mean, you can't live life properly without proper theology. So right. um, as far as salvation goes, um, what I find, I guess my biggest hang up for, with Calvinism, and this is kind of a jab at them um, or it. Yeah. Uh, is is that my biggest hang-up is how they butcher scriptures. <laughs> That's my biggest hang-up. They, they butcher scriptures. And uh, that's my biggest hang-up with them. Um, you have any examples? I mean, yeah. Um, you know, who is predestined to what? That, that, gets them, that gets them every time. It doesn't matter what passage you go to. You can go to Romans. Uh, you can go to Eight. Ephesians. It doesn't yeah. matter. You just say, well, who is being predestined to what? To what? And mm-hmm. that completely destroys their argument. It's yeah. very easy, but um, they—you ask them, and you just—I I have some really deep conversations with Calvinists because I want them to—I try to challenge them to think. Right. And, I, and one guy, he was just constantly. This was recently. He was constantly uh, predestined, predestined, elect, elect, grace, grace, grace. You know the doctrines right. of grace and all this stuff. And I just—I was frank with them. You know, really briefly, but it just it it, it hit him like a ton of bricks because he, yeah. he was like he said he said wow. What I told him was I was like, well, you believe what you want as long as you don't think that you're saved because you're predestined. As long as you know that you're saved because Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again from the dead. Mm. Yeah. You know, and and it, he just he's like wow. I was <laughs> like yeah, you're not saved because you're predestined. Right. You're saved because Jesus died. And when I said it like that, it just, he never thought of it like that. Yeah. He didn't look at those two things as being opposed, but they are. You, you're, you're not saved because you're predestined. You're saved because Jesus died on the cross for your sins right. and rose again from the dead. Now, when you ask them, well, why did God predestine you? Why did God choose you? They'll say, well, we don't know. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. Well, I know, then they'll say, well, I know it has nothing to do with me, though. Like, okay, then what else could it be? Was it arbitrary? Did God just like flip a coin? Right. Like to pick, okay, well, was it random? No, it wasn't random. He he chose me for a reason. <laughs> well, why? If it wasn't random, then it has to be something in you that God saw and was like, you know what? I like that guy. Right. You know what I'm saying? There had to be something about you that God was like, yeah, I want to save him. <laughs> you know, and they it, don't it, see it that way, but if you yeah. try to help them think through it logically, they, they're left with no choice. That has to be it. Well, if if they're open, definitely, because I, I've met a lot that I've tried to have these conversations with and and they're not very open. No. You know, they're not very honest. You know, th- their mind's made up. And at that point, I, I just 
I quit wasting my breath, stuff like that. But yeah, and, and when they get to the whole aspect of Romans eight twenty nine, for whom he forward foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. You know, <clears throat> I've held a particular view in the past. I don't anymore. That that view teaches that we were predestined because of God's foreknowledge of us choosing uh, the free gift. But the more I've actually studied it, I was encouraged to look at an article written by the Gospel Coalition. I think it was a reformed view of Romans 8. And I got a podcast, two-part podcast out there on Apple's CastBox, everything else. Go ahead and check it out. But uh, the more I studied this verse in its overall context in Romans chapter 8, the more... I look at this verse as as far as people that have been uh, having to walk through serious bouts of struggles and persecution in their life. I, I think of Abraham, Abraham or not Abraham, but Job. Job lost everything. He lost his health. He lost his family. He lost his substance. He, he lost it all. And I don't think everybody's called to a life of Job right? To reveal the glory of God. And, and God knows those people that would be so very faithful uh, through those trials. And so when I'm looking at Romans chapter 8, and I read the passage of, you know, verse number 18, for I reckon the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. And we keep reading this verse, we see that it appears the main thrust of this is suffering, is suffering and persecution and groaning. And when I really looked at that from the aspect of suffering like Jesus suffered, I came to the thought and the conclusion and the fact that there are some people that they have a Job life. You know, it is not unto salvation, but it's a Job life that, I I don't know, you just... I put the spoiler out there. Look at that podcast episode because I don't want to butcher my words on what I did and, and wrote as far as that. But it's not talking about justification, forensic justification. And then when you get to the other aspect of predestination, you get Ephesians chapter one, verse number five. I love what you pointed out, you know, predestined who to what. And when you get to Ephesians chapter one, verse five, Paul writes that having predestinated us unto the adoption of children, it doesn't necessarily mean that we were chosen, predetermined before the foundation of the earth to receive eternal life. It's that those that did receive eternal life, those would be placed into the family of God. And if we just let the Bible speak for itself, 99% of the times it's going to answer the questions that you have. But In a lot Romans, of times they don't Romans do that. Eight, Romans 8 defines what the adoption is. It's the resurrection of our body. Resurrection of our body. Wait for that because the whole creation groans, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so when, I, like, like I said earlier, Matthew 7, James 2, a lot of these other passages, people will go ahead and just place eisegesis into it, their philosophical theology, without trying to understand it from its context. And I love what you said earlier, that Scripture has to be understood not just from the verse— but also from the Bible context in seminary, they taught us you have your immediate context, your surrounding context, your your book context, and then your Bible context. And one of the biggest things that I've had to learn is on the verses that I know are very clear as to what they say, 
understand those verses. The verse that looks like I don't really understand what it says and it's really hard to understand and there's a variance of opinions. Don't let that one verse change these other verses that I clearly know what they're saying. So, and yeah, just like Jason's saying here, if salvation was predetermined, it would take away the free will, making it a dictatorship, you know, rather than choosing, you know. So, but I think I've already really talked about what my views of Calvinism and Lordship reveal about the world and the culture. Uh, but what are your thoughts as far as that's concerned? When we're looking at Lordship salvation or we're looking at Calvinism, what theology does it reveal to the world? You're talking about if assuming that uh, Calvinism's true? Well, if anybody holds to a Calvinistic worldview uh-huh. or a Calvinistic yeah. understanding of Scripture, yeah. how would they affect society? Like, if they believe that God elected people to salvation, mm-hmm. if they believe Christians have to bear fruit, right? you know, things like this, how, how do you think they would have mm-hmm. to look at the world and society and the culture they live in? Well, if they're, if they're like, uh, ah, mill, then they're, you're really in trouble because if they get a hold of uh, <laughs> some kind of political power or, you know what I mean, to have their own little country, you know, <laughs> if you don't produce fruit, man, we're taking you out of the kingdom. We're oh. out of here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it, it could get, you know, anyway. It could it, get it's, interesting. Yeah, it could if, you know, you take it to that kind of extreme. But, I mean, it's not outside of the realm of possibility for a religious group to yeah, you know, gain control of an entire nation. I mean, look at Islam. But uh, you know, the when I look at uh, Calvinism and um, what it if 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 that's true, what it would say about God, um, it's for one, I know it's not the God of the Bible, but two, uh, it would prove that He's not really a loving God, that He doesn't love you know, mankind in that it's just not a God that I would ever serve. It's not the God of the Bible. It's not, you know what I mean? It's not Jesus Christ. That's for sure. It doesn't reveal, you know, the Calvinistic God is completely opposed to the character of Christ as we, as we look in his uh, life and ministry. Um, It just, to me, it goes against everything that we know about the character of God. You know, I didn't think about that before, but if we understand, I believe it's Colossians chapter one that says Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. And we look at the characteristics that make up who Jesus Christ is. You know, he's love, grace, mercy. He's truth. He's holiness. You know, he has all that stuff, too. But he loves the world, too. He reaches out for the world with a Calvinist view. They can't say that God loves the world. You know, especially if they're looking at the fact that God has only elected some. Mm-hmm. How and would not you even preach the gospel? How could you right. go up to somebody and say, Jesus died on the cross for you? You couldn't. Well, in their defense, and I'm sure you've already heard this argument, is they don't know who the elect are. So they're and just so they're just they're throwing the blanket statement out. And that's one of my hangups too, is is when Jesus Christ came. Or when, when John the Baptist said, you know, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the, world. of the world. Or Jesus Christ, you know, offers eternal life to whosoever receives him. To me, if if election to salvation, to eternal life was biblical, if it was biblical, 
than the promises of Jesus to look and live, if you will. And John the Baptist, the Lamb of God takes away sins of the world. Those are all lies mm-hmm. or they're false promises, because I would think of all the people Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry would know who would and who would not be the elect. And so if he's given this blanket statement out there, believe in me, if they're not the elect, he's giving a false sense of salvation. But we know that's not the Jesus of scripture either. And so I'm thankful for that. But it makes Jesus out to be either a, a liar or B, it makes Jesus out to be this person that has this false blanket waiver, blanket statement, blanket request that he knows people aren't going to believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know the whole goal of the Messiah, like even like as far as like the Genesis foundation, the you know when you look at that, um, right. in Adam all die. God promised to to save Adam. Like he he wants to redeem Adam kind. Not just you get what I'm saying? He wants to redeem his creation. Right. If Adam's gonna be sort of like equivalent to mankind, if you yes. will. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You get where I'm coming from with that? Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. So when 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 Jesus comes and he goes, Well, I want I want to save you, but not you and not you and not you, then does you know it's not it, it, it doesn't fit with we all died in Adam and the whole redemption plan from the beginning is to redeem the mankind right. <laughs> from falling. Yeah. It's not just to redeem some of mankind. He wants to redeem all of mankind. Right. But may, under under the when we understand what mankind is and how God created us, we have a will. The tree mm-hmm. in the the tree in the garden proves that God created us with a free will. <laughs> the whole it it, it, go, it contradicts everything we know about God, yeah. and that's why they don't have good answers about Adam. If you ask them, someone will say, "Well, Adam's the only one, the only one who had free will." They'll I've heard them. Some of them concede, but then some of them were like, "Nope, he didn't have a free will at all." Now they're starting to teach, uh, even in one of my seminary classes that um adam was already going to die anyway you know they try to teach that he was going to die anyway right and in that he uh that god pre even predetermined that adam was going to sin you know and all this weird stuff and it's you know well that's what sunday night when we were going through james i drew out a couple statements from john calvin as long as well as a baptist confessional statement from 1689 that clearly says that John Calvin in the Calvin's Institute, chapter 16, and then again in chapter 23, that I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember the quote off the top of my head, but God not only foreordained the sins of mankind and the fall of man, but also had pleasure in it. And to me, when you read the Book of Mormon and you read the Pearl of Great Price, which I've spent a great deal of reading and studying, That's the same thing they teach as far as their God in the fall of Adam is that God purposed it. God willed it and it had to happen for mankind to have joy in life. And so Calvin's pretty much teaching a Mormon doctrine, although Mormonism, I guess, came in after Calvin. But you get what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And so even the Baptist confessional statement of 1689, as well as Calvin and a lot of others, 
they will go to the extreme of saying God is the author of sin. But we we saw last Sunday night that in James chapter one, that if we're tempted and we're drawn away of our own lust, it's not because God has tempted us and we're sinning. It's because it's our desire that we're sinning, which goes against what John Calvin's saying as well, as far as this authorship of evil. And so you're completely right in that aspect that they go that far. But so, so we looked at why theology matters, uh, the aspect of if this book is written by a personal loving God, that we would do well to try to understand what it says. We looked at the fact that Calvinism does not teach really the God of the Bible and lordship salvation does not teach security, does not teach eternal security. It places one's security upon their own selves and their own works. We looked at all that. What does the theology of free grace reveal about the character of God? In free grace theology, what should the Christian do in regards to the culture and society? Does it does it give birth to desire for outreach, evangelism, discipleship, or what? What are your thoughts? Well, um, I was listening to a guy the other day. Made, he made a lot of sense, and I, I really liked um, his little video, whatever it was. Um, he was explaining that when you have the free grace, which what I would call would be the biblical understanding of salvation. Right. Um, when when you do that, uh, according to First John, if you believe that, mm-hmm. that you're going to be motivated by God's love to respond in kind. Okay. The what we do as Christians is a response to the love of God. And when you understand that it's a uh, it's given to you freely, mm-hmm. right? And it's given to it's given to you by grace. Then, in response, you should, you know, uh, love God. You know, it's not that we we loved Him, but that He first loved us. Right. And and we perceive the love of God. And that love of God motivates us. But I think what I'm trying to say is that um, only the free grace perspective has the true understanding of what God's love is. You know what I mean? Um, I think that. Calvinists are more focused on predestination and they limit the love of God. Right. Right. Whereas a free grace uh, person, uh, they understand that Jesus came to die for the whole world and that there are people that are on their way to hell that Jesus loves. And so that motivates us. You see what I'm saying? Because we were on our way to hell. Uh, Calvinist doesn't ever, doesn't think that they were ever in danger of hell. Right. They don't even believe that they were saved from hell. Really? You know what I mean? But as a free grace guy, you know, you know that before you were saved, you were on your way to hell, but Jesus died mm-hmm. on the cross for your sins. You believed it. Now you're on your way to heaven. He saved you from a place that you were going. Calvinists, <laughs> they don't believe that. They, yeah. they can't because it goes against what they, what they teach. Um, but yeah, of course it will motivate you to soul win and yeah. to, and it actually put, it makes uh, the Great Commission actually make sense. And with Calvinism, it doesn't make any sense. Like, why is yes. he doing this? Why is he wasting my time? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, why is he putting me through this? Because, you know, you know, he's, everybody's just going to be saved anyway, right. you know? But with the free grace view, A, you properly understand God's w- love, 
And so mm -hmm. you can properly respond in kind and you properly understand the need for other people to be saved as well and to yeah. believe the gospel. Because if not, they're going to go to hell. It, it, it seems like every time when a lordship or Calvinist, they'll bring up the idea of works for salvation. And they bring up this aspect that a Christian has to have works to have maintain or prove gen, genuine salvation. They don't leave room for the child evangelism. Okay, so so bear with me. So there's a lot of people that get saved at a young age because children, they're so much more open to the freeness of the gift of eternal life. And so if a child gets saved at seven, eight, nine years old, do you really think they know really what immoral living is? You know, and so if a child gets saved seven, eight, nine years old, and say say they get saved through the Operation Christmas Child, we're about here at the church. Uh, well, I'm not going to say anything, but uh, say Operation Christmas Child is happening, and they receive a shoebox, and they hear the gospel presented to it, the free gift of eternal life, and they choose the gift of eternal life, and they get saved because of that shoebox that somebody sends and, and commits into prayer. And so say this is over in Africa or Middle East, whatever the case is. But guess what? They might have a little discipleship program right after that. But then they got years of growth. If there's not a solid church out there, if there's not a solid Christian community out there, there or any type of Christian, there's no discipleship. Free grace teaches the need for discipleship so that people, when they go astray or when they go prodigal, or when they're trying to learn how to live and look like Christ, people can come alongside them and disciple them and show them what Jesus looks like and how to work in this situation, that situation, whatever the case is. And as a child, it seems like Lordship and Calvinists don't allow for growth of a child that gets saved at seven, eight, nine to go ahead and grow up, be influenced in public school and everything else, make some bad decisions, but then come back. And like I said, it neglects the aspect of discipleship. And I wouldn't be where I am today, first and foremost, without Jesus and the Holy Spirit enabling me and giving me victory over certain areas of my life. But also, I wouldn't be who I am today without some key people that discipled me, such as my wife, who burdened me to get to church and get my head out of the sand. Uh, my pastor, Ken, that went ahead and was pivotal in my discipleship. Uh, by Matt, another brother from another mother here, but he has two T's, not one L. Uh, it, it, so there's been people who are invested in getting me to where I am. And that's one of the beauties as well as free grace theology. It places emphasis on discipleship so that we can continue to look more and more like Christ. And like I said, I was t teaching a while back on discipleship on a Wednesday night. There's so many people that get saved in the church, and that's a wonderful thing. They get the free gift of eternal life. They're saved, set, secure forever. But what happens is they never get discipled. And so you get all these Christians that, that are saved. They're going to heaven. But guess what? They have no idea what it looks like to live like Christ because no one's invested in discipleship. And so once we invest and see a need for discipleship, we can really affect the heart change in them reflecting on, we weren't redeemed by corruptible things as gold, silver, but we were redeemed by incorruptible things as the precious blood of the Lamb. And then we can work and serve because of salvation, not for salvation. And so 
but yeah, you were talking about election and yeah, gospel uh, evangelism outreach doesn't make sense in the reform mindset because of God elected, you know, but again, it goes back to understanding context. Election in scripture is never, not once, never, ever referenced to eternal life. It is only referenced to an office or a position, if you will. It's election of a service. Never once is it mentioned election unto eternal life or salvation. And so once we understand that, we can understand, yes, election is biblical. Jesus Christ said about the apostles of the 12 apostles, have I not chosen you? And yet one of you is the devil. I believe those people were chosen to the office of an apostleship, but they weren't all chosen to salvation. None of them were chosen to salvation. They made a free will choice. And one of them was the devil, and that was Judas Iscariot. And he was elected to the position, but he was not elected to eternal life because no one's elected to eternal life. So, bleh, I, <laughs> sorry, that was no, that was loud. No, that's good. Like, like you could probably see and hear and anybody else that's watching, listening can probably understand and, and feel the heart coming through because this is something that I'm passionate about. This is about the end of uh, this broadcast. So if you have questions, put them in the comments. We'd love to listen, look at them, answer them, you know, try to make stuff up off the fly, whatever the case is. But uh, this is just something that really matters to me, man, because, mm -hmm. I mean, you get geeks like me and you and and we love studying scripture. We love wrestling talking about pre-trib pre-wrath you know futurist preterist <laughs> you know all this other stuff but there's value in that and when we get people that just don't care it does affect the culture we live in it affects how we live it affects how we view god and it affects what we think about ourselves there's so many people in the world today that are insecure and they feel like they can never make a right decision. They're never measuring up. And now they're trying to measure themselves up to see if they're even a Christian. And they're constantly living in bondage. And to me, that is that is extremely sad. And God mm -hmm. never wanted that to be. Mm -hmm. God wanted conviction to bring us back in the right fellowship with him. Mm -hmm. God wanted conviction to see our need for a savior and to trust him for eternal life. But never after a after someone is saved, never does he want anybody to question his promise of being placed in the family of God. Mm -hmm. And so it's personal to me, man. It is. So, uh, so we got a question here. What about individuals who are disabled? Where do they play in Calvinism? Mm -hmm. So, uh, I guess, what would you, I. What do you mean uh, as far as disabled and where do they come into Calvinism? I, I think I have a idea, Russ, while he's uh, ex explaining a little more. What are your thoughts on that? What about the individuals who are disabled? Where do they fit in Calvinism? How do they work for? Okay, how do um, they work? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Well, right. what do you want to say, Russ? Um, well, I don't like to assume that Calvinism is right at all. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like it. Um, but if, you know, it doesn't, yeah. as far as people who are individuals, like, yeah, how well, how much good can they do? I don't know what the Calvinists would say. He'd probably say something along the lines of, uh, you know, as long as they got a good heart and love the Lord and do what they can. You know what I mean? Like, you know what I'm saying? As long as they do what they can. Uh, I, I think you're... Stuff. 
I mean, I, w- I would believe, I-, I guess it depends on how disabled or debilitated are they. Uh, if someone's disabled, you know, they can speak in love. They can be an encourager. You know, if, if they are paralyzed, there's still things they, they can say uh, that would be fruits of the spirit, if you will, gentleness, love, joy, peace, long suffering, things like that. So they'll say by their words, you know, they, they can prove themselves to be Christians as far as that's concerned. But yeah, so I don't know. Hopefully that answers your question, Jason. That was a good one. Where do they fit into the Calvinism view? Uh, some Calvinists would say that God has already predestined them to be uh, disabled from the beginning and that they got that particular life. They would use the story of the man born blind in the gospel accounts that he was born that way to bring glory to God. But then they would probably also say, oh, they can do good things by their words. And, oh, it's the heart motivation as well uh, that God sees. But another question, are Lord Shippers believers? He's He's coming out with the machete. (laughs) Are Lord Shippers believers? He's lopping heads off today. Now, this I, I want to start with this one. Uh, it's interesting to me because, you know, if, if I could be so blunt, Russ, you have no idea if I'm a Christian or not. Right. I mean, you're trusting my testimony. You're trusting what I'm telling you that I believe as far as my eternal security and trusting in Jesus to pay for my sins mm-hmm. and receiving the gift of eternal life. Right. There's nothing you can see within me that you can say, oh, I know 100% shadow of doubt he's a Christian. Because I could be lying about this all day long. Atheists have some better works than I do. So you can't even judge their works. And so when you're looking at lordship salvation uh, advocates and the fact that you got to make Jesus Lord of your life, uh, this aspect of having works to prove that you're a Christian, I would would say this much. It depends on what they believed and when they believed it. Mm -hmm. I would say that somebody can get saved, like say me, I, I believe in the free grace theology that I believe in the free gift of salvation, no strings attached, period, no fine print. But say a year from now, I get into some false teaching. I go, you know, stray away, whatever the case is, and I become a lordshipper. So now I'm a lordshipper into anybody's eyes at that time. But I had received the gift of eternal life before I even trusted in any works at that time, year before. And so because I placed my faith in Jesus Christ completely free, then I would be a Christian no matter if I became a lordship or a Calvinist, Arminianist, even an atheist, because God is faithful. Uh, he will not go back on his word. But if we're looking at a fact, uh, if somebody starts off, at, I don't think anybody really starts off as a lordshipper, to be honest, but maybe someone is evangelized under a lordship teaching and they say, you have to repent, you need to get rid of all of your sins, and then you have to go ahead and make Jesus Lord of your life, and then you could be saved. I believe that's a Galatianized gospel, that's a legalistic gospel, and I do not believe that's the true gospel. And so if someone received that message, I would say they're not a Christian. They have to believe in the free gift of eternal life, completely freely, divorced from any work whatsoever. I mean, that's my thoughts, Russ. Yeah, I would say um, if you mean it in the strictest sense, um, our Lordshippers believers, um, I, I think, you know, what what Danny said, I would agree with 100 um, percent. Our Lordshippers saved. Yeah, it depends on what they believed when they believed it. Um, but as far as are they believers, I would ask believers in what? 
are they believers in the true gospel? Uh, I would say no. Um, you know, because predestination and lordship salvation um, kind of go hand in hand, and um, it's just one end from the other. Predestination is the beginning, lordship is the the follow up. You know what I mean? Like yeah. uh, making him the lord of your life and stuff like that. But um, yeah, I would say believe. I would ask believing in what exactly? Um, if you mean just by saved, I would have to answer it the same way Danny did, but. If you know our Lordshippers believers in the true gospel, I would say no. Right. So another question from Rob: <clears throat> What's your personal opinions on how Christians with little understanding or have not ex been exposed to hermeneutics and how it applies? Uh, asking for those with no education on that subject, uh, what are your personal opinions on how Christians can apply, uh, I guess, scripture that don't have uh, the education and stuff like that? What are your thoughts? Um, if I understand what he's asking correctly, um, you know, just what is your personal opinions on how Christians, how Christians what? How Christians um, with a little understanding. Yeah. Rob, you want to add a, a word or two there? Or have not been exposed to it. Uh, hermeneutics and how it applies. Well, let's give Rob a minute to add a, a word or two. So. Uh, Golfside Ministries, good to see Chris on here. Uh, less question, more comment. Job 42 uh, gives excellent insight, biblical reason why theology matters. Uh, he says, It was so that after Yahweh had spoken these words to Job, Yahweh said to Eliphaz the Tumanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me the thing that is, that is right, as my servant Job has. And so he says, so isn't there a real sense God doesn't like it when we say what is wrong about him? Seems he takes what we talk about him seriously. And no, I 100%, 1,000% agree with that. You know, if especially in James chapter 3, verse number 1, where James says, you know, let not be many masters, for in doing so they'll incur a stricter judgment. So especially those that have any sort of ministry in teaching or preaching, there is a stricter uh, accountability, if you will, that we're going to have standing before the beam seat of Christ on what we said. But then even just uh, say no one's in the ministry and it's just a Christian that's trying to tell people about God. Yes, it really matters what we're saying because it's about God's character, God's love, God's reach, things like that. Like you pointed out in Job 42, verse 7, that God cares what is being said. It's like me, it, my reputation. If someone's going to go out there in society and the culture and they're going to say, oh, Danny was saying this and doing this and that. And, oh, the reason why you're going through this trouble is because, number one, he didn't choose you. Or number two, he's doing this to you, you know, and I wouldn't like that if someone's trying to name drop me and, and slander me. And I see the same thing with Scripture as well, that, no, God does not like that. And uh, obviously we see it in Scripture, and he actually brings judgment on people that have done that in the past. And so what are your thoughts, Russ? No, I think I agree with you uh, on that 100%. And, um, it looks like Rob had clear, has cleared it up a little bit as far as his question goes. Um, what is hermeneutics in layman's terms and how— can I use it in a basic way without a theology degree? Um, well, I'll go ahead and do the easy part uh, <laughs> okay. and, and talk about what hermeneutics is, and I'll let you explain the practical side, okay? 
Um, sure. Anyway, so um, hermeneutics is a basically it's the method of interpretation uh, of the Bible of the Word of God, and it's like proper hermeneutics. Uh, you can look at it as proper guide rails that are going to help you to properly interpret what the Scripture is saying. And that's what Danny was kind of explaining earlier, different hermeneutical, uh, I guess, guide rails, if you will, um, in order for us to come to a proper understanding of Scripture. Um, you don't want to take things out of context, for one. You know, that's that's a hermeneutic. You know, like, don't take things out of its context. Um, understanding it within its context mm-hmm. is key. And so that's a proper her- hermeneutic. So, like, um, that, in a nutshell is what hermeneutics is. It's a method of interpretation. Um, but as far as your second part of that question, I'll let Danny go ahead. Well, I mean, you're 100% right in the fact that, no, no one needs a the They didn't have theology degrees back then either. Now, some people will say, oh, the apostles, they were trained under the greatest you know, theologian ever. And I would 100% agree with that as well. But Timothy didn't have a theology degree. Uh, Barnabas didn't have a theology. De- and so theology degrees... Uh, aren't necessary. And I know, I know, Rob, you know, you know that. I mean, you know a lot of scripture, brother. And I miss our conversations. We got to have them again someday. But uh, how, how do we apply it and use it in a basic way without that particular degree? Really, we hermeneutic all, all the time. We hermeneutic every day. When we're reading instructions on how to microwave pizza, we're actually hermeneuticing, if you will, because we're trying to take words written in a particular way within a particular context on, okay, we need to put it, cook it for 450 degrees. Now, contextually, if it doesn't say oven, we're going to automatically know cook it in the oven for 450 degrees. So we can use context clues. Uh, If you remember any letters uh, you may have written in the past, maybe you have a boot camp, you know, stuff like that. And you wrote letters back home to family and friends. When they're reading those letters or you're receiving letters while you're at boot camp, you're going to understand those letters literally because it's a letter. You're going to understand the background, why they wrote that letter or why you wrote the letter. You're going to understand who wrote it to you. And so you're going to have all this background information. You're going to understand it literally because it's meant to be taken in a literal way. In the same way, if you read Robert Frost's poem, The Road Less Traveled, uh, we'll understand that, no, he's not talking about a literal road that he's trying to figure out, okay, should I take this literal road here or there? We're going to understand that it's a poem, and we're going to try to understand, okay, what does he mean symbolically? And really, with that poem as an example, there's like 5,000 different interpretations of what he means by the road less traveled. And so, unless we're Robert Frost, in that poem, we really don't know what he truly means as far as the road less traveled. But I use that illustration by saying we know it's a poem, so we know there's going to be symbolism. And so we're going to try to understand what's being captured that we understand literally. And then how does this symbol actually play a role within it? And so all that to say, when we're looking at interpreting any body of literature, we're going to be looking at it within the context of its being written, who the author and audience is. And so when we're looking at scripture, The easiest way, really, is the historical narratives and the letters. Those are the easiest, because within those, you already have the framework. Like I said, we're going through the book of James. I'll use this as an example. The book of James, verse number one, it says, James, a servant of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. What James is telling us right there, right up front, is he's writing to the 12 tribes, 
12 tribes of Israel. So these are Jewish people. They're scattered abroad. So these were part of a dispersion, I believe, is the Acts chapter 8 when Paul was wreaking havoc on the church dispersion. And then we find out by beloved brethren used three times, brethren using 15 times. We find out in chapter 2, verse 7, where scripture says, uh, do they not blaspheme the worthy name by which you are called? In chapter 1, verse 18, it talks about the aspect of we were be, uh, he begat us with his will that we would be a kind of first fruits. And so we understand they're Christians. And so right off the bat, we know they're Jewish Christians who are persecuted. When we understand that backdrop, we really understand the totality of the book of James. These are Christian believers that got chased out of their home because of their faith in Christ. And so when we understand that, we can understand when we get to chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, when G James says, faith without works is dead. When the Lordship is trying to say, if you don't have works with your faith, you're not a genuine Christian. Understanding the backdrop of Jewish Christians who lost everything for their faith how would it make you feel if God told you, I know you left everything for me, but if you're not going to help this homeless person that needs food, guess what? You're not even my son. Do you really think, and I know this is a rhetorical you, I know you don't think this, Rob, but, but does the Lord Shipper really think that is what God's trying to get across in James chapter 2, 14 through 26? It is not. It's all about practical Christian living. And the way we can understand that is by understanding the author and the audience in the context. And that, a lot of that is already given within Scripture. We don't have to study extra biblical texts. We don't have to study the history, their culture, or anything. We could just read those opening verses that a lot of people skip and overlook. Uh, they skip, you know, the introductions. But that's sometimes the most important part. So we could figure out, are these Christians or are these just a regular church, if you will, just made up of mixed unbelievers, believers? Are they Gentiles and, and things like that? So like Russ was saying, yeah, it's an interpretive method of trying to understand it literally, grammatically, and historically, the LGH principle, and then just using the context clues within the scripture itself. Russ, did I, were you going to say something? Yeah, um, I kind of wanted to bring it. So he's saying, I think what he's asking, he's saying, what is hermeneutics in layman's terms, and how can mm -hmm. I use it in a basic way without a theology degree? So how how would how would this look like to Rob if he were to apply what you're saying like how would he go about practicing hermeneutics what's a good place to start for him like what should he do like if if we're asking okay how do i go ahead and and understand scripture a little yeah. more clearly uh, yeah like he's saying like how do how does how does a guy like rob how, how how would you help him properly interpret scripture in a general like give him the tools to do it yeah but essentially like what you said and what i said understanding the context understanding who the audience is in reading it as a whole the chapters and verses one of the biggest things chapters and verses are really a detriment i mean they're good references but a lot of times we're going to read chapter one then we're going to stop not realizing that the thought continues into chapter three you know in chapter two there's passages in say the olivet discourse i think it is at least the beatitudes spans like three or four chapters. And in order to understand what he says in this particular chapter, we're going to have to go all the way back to the beginning dialogue. What started the conversation? What started the question? And so sometimes it's a matter of reading the book in its entirety, not just reading a passage isolated that provides that clarity in the context. So 
you know, proper study and dividing in context. Yeah. yeah so essentially it would be really those main principles. Yeah. I think like you're saying, as far as the principles are concerned, um, that, that, that helped me a lot is understanding, uh, Rob, if you, if you're looking at a text, um, if you're looking at James or you're looking at the book of Hebrews or whatever you're looking at, um, try to find what they call the timeless truth principle. You know what I mean? The timeless truth that is in okay, the text. We, t- we talk about time. application now, huh? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you want to go in, you want to go into the book and try to find a timeless principle, right? You want to find the truth that's not only true for the original people that the letter was written to, but you want to try to find the truth that also applies to you and me today in 2022, living in America, and you want to find that timeless principle and then apply it to your life. And that's, that's part of, you know, that's, I guess, one of the main functions of hermeneutics, right? Is to so, that. yeah, I'm, I'm going to see if I have it over here yet. I passed it out in my James study, but basically if anybody's looking for a really good book as far as, you know, how to interpret and study scripture, trying to find out how do we apply scripture is one of the most important aspects of it. And so, well, looking at, okay, what is the principle God is getting across? Like take, for instance, James, James, these 12 tribes going through struggles in their faith and their life. Okay. So when we go through struggles in our life, our circumstances, our trials, Using the principles we find in James, God doesn't want the believers in James's day to shut down, to go ahead and start worrying about themselves and neglecting others. And so when we're going through our trials, we need to, too, not shut ourselves down and be introverted. We need to still have this external focus to apply those principles. So you know, Rob was saying, for example, I've heard things such as when two or three different passages when two or three different passages that same the same thing, you can then claim it as theology. And so what would you say to that, Russ? Um, I don't know every truth claim off the top of my head in the Bible to be able to say that every truth claim is backed up uh, two or three times. Um, you know what I'm saying? I, I'm pretty right. comfortable assuming that it probably is, you know, repeated more than once. But um, I'm always kind of leery to to say, you know, right. Automatically, no, never, you know, or yes, always. I think what what's important is understanding the difference between a descriptive passage and a prescriptive passage. And so the difference is, is there are some verses are merely describing. They're descriptive. They're describing what is happening. These are mainly found in your historical narratives, if you will. So history, you can never develop theology. You can't develop theology based on, back it up, history doesn't develop doctrine. History illustrates doctrine, and that's a big thing. So understanding that some passages in Scripture are merely descriptive. What is happening? What What's happening in the culture? What's happening in the history? Moses is going to the Red Sea. They're stuck between the Red Sea and the Pharaoh's armies behind him. It's describing how Moses is lifting his staff and God is parting the water. We can't develop theology based on that principle. Now, there are some passages in there that are prescriptive. They are prescribing actions. And this is mostly what the New Testament is. Much of the Old Testament is descriptive. 
but much of the New Testament is prescriptive, prescribing courses of actions in ways we live our life. And so understanding the difference between the descriptive and the prescriptive passages, I think, would help in uh, applying to our lives as well. Uh, and like Jason pointed out, asking the Holy Spirit for understanding before reading and thorough pr through prayer, of course, it's a good place to start. Final answer is going to start with prayer. And I agree. I remember there was one time I was reading scripture a few years back and I was just, it was dry. I was getting nothing out of it. And I just paused for a minute. I was reading like second Kings and I paused for a minute, took time. I prayed. I was like, God, just give me some, let me get something out of this. It's, I'm feeling dry. And so I got done praying. I, I was reading over the Solomon's temple. And then next thing you know, after praying, it's like the Holy Spirit just illuminated uh, the type of wood, uh, the dimensions of the temple, where the wood came from. And it is sort of like made it come so much more alive. And so, yes, Jason completely agree that the yeah. Spirit's role is to teach and illuminate the word in our life. And so yeah. that is a, a uh, very important aspect. Right, that you can't you can't launch without that. You know what I mean? You have to. Um, that's 100 percent. That's awesome. Yep. So, all right. So give it about another minute. If anybody else has any other questions, like I said, we can keep making stuff up, you know, and pretend like we know what we're talking about. But otherwise, uh, let me know if you saw the intro. Did you like the kittens? The kittens were so cute, weren't they, Russ? No. Are you a kitten hater? Uh, I don't know if I, I don't like disdain kittens. I don't hold <laughs> grudges against kittens. I don't have any animosity towards kittens. <laughs> I know. But they're, what's that? The last question, Danny, what beard? Dude, I was just, hey, I was literally thinking the same thing. <laughs> what kind of Why, hair you gel like do it? you use? Are you a Dapper Dan man? You, you talk about my beard oil? <laughs> you, you like it, Russ? You like it, Rob? I, I've been switching. There, there's a beard oil that I've been trying to get for a long time. It's actually from Japan. It's some Japanese samurai type beard oil. I forget what it's called, but it's never in stock anymore. What are you using it's, now? Viking butter or something? No, nah, what I'm using right now is actually Gillette. You know, I haven't used Jack Black yet. There's a couple I haven't tried because beard oil is expensive. They're expensive. But right now I'm using Gillette. But uh, I've used beard balm. I've used beard butter. I've used beard oil. And so I'm sticking with beard oil right now. So, and yes, thank you. At least somebody's coming with me that kittens are cute. But even though they grow up to become cats, my savior is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's not called the uh, kitten. A kit. Well, he's not called any sort of canine though either. You know, like I've always told Pastor Ken, Bible doesn't say anything good about dogs. But at least scripture records that Jesus is symbolic of a yeah. lion of the tribe of Judah. We're talking about the king of the jungle versus domesticated kittens. They're not the same thing, Danny. Sorry. They are so cute. Right. Thank you, yeah. Mickey. <laughs> so I thought you were live at your house. Got some more kittens. <laughs> they were laughing. No, we're up at the church right now. It's easier. I got a couple dogs up, up at the house. That would be a little loud. Are you so. going to be an old creepy cat man? Between me and my daughter, we're probably going to be the creepy cat people. You know, we're <laughs> going to be the crazy cat lady and, and guy. But nah, they're just so cute. So, uh, well, if nobody's got any other questions, this has been close to two hours. So 
Russ, any any shout outs as far as where can they find you and repeat? Nah, man, where I just want to say hi to everybody and uh we appreciate all the love and prayers and we love y'all and over there at Odd Baptist. Uh I see Ken uh McClure out in the crowd. Love you, brother. And uh saw Ken Stadola out there earlier. Love you too. And uh yeah, I'm going to tell everybody. They're actually out front. I made them all go outside, and Rachel decided to pitch a tent out front and let them do s'mores. So they, they're uh, they're having a good time tonight. That's awesome. Well, just because everybody loves kittens, you know what's coming up. Until next time, God bless. Mm-hmm.